I'm guessing that many of us are currently involved in a three-week-long project of watching the Olympics and find ourselves in the strange situation of having strong opinions on things that we hadn't thought about at all a week ago. Watching the diving and having very strong opinions on how much splash has come up and saying clearly to whoever else in the room or to nobody in particular, he's only going to get sevens for that. Lots of splash there. Not good synchronicity. Or finding yourself watching these dancing horses and thinking, is this a sport? But also, how do you get a horse to do that? Or just looking at these athletes and thinking, I don't understand how we can be of the same species when you can do that and I struggle to walk downstairs in the morning. The Olympics are amazing, aren't they? Not least because they are full of joy. They are full of moments of outstanding skill and unbelievable happiness. I could list off some of my favourite performances, but we'd be here all night. Listen to this one description of um, a, a piece I, wrote, uh, I read about Dina Asher-Smith um, and her you know, ultimate failure yesterday, I guess. For this was one night to prove the sheer precariousness of her business, to illustrate that while athletics can lift your soul, it can just as surely break your heart. But I thought that line, it can lift your soul. I think that's why so many people, people who may maybe never watch any other sport, get so into the Olympics. Those moments that you can see people smiling through their masks. And the shared delight in the success of others. Maybe you're watching this afternoon, the men's 100 metre final. And just before was the men's high jump. And both won by Italians. And as the, the sprinter runs over the line, the high jumper's there waiting to give him a hug. Probably breaking all sorts of COVID protocols. But that shared excitement and happiness... That when somebody gets to a final they weren't expecting to get to. Or when somebody wins a bronze medal out of nowhere. Let alone those gold medal winning moments. And it plays into this question that we're asked constantly. Whether literally or implicitly. Don't you just want to be happy? Don't you just want to be happy? To have the, the smile that lights up a room. To be the sort of person that when you're around others, everybody feels warmed by your sheer presence. Advertising companies very much play on this human desire to be happy. And so they try and sell us sofas and shampoo and promise us that if you have this product, then you will be happy. Don't you just want to be joyful? Don't we all? want to be people that are full of joy. Joy is, according to Galatians 5, a marker of the Christian. One of the fruits of the Spirit that we are looking at over this summer. A characteristic of a new life that people have been called to if we follow Jesus. A marker of a changed heart. The work of God in the life of people. Those who follow Jesus will be joyful people. But 
What is joy? Let's think about defining it. I think sometimes it's easier to to recognise joy than it is to actually describe it or, or define it, certainly. In the Bible passage that Hannah just read to us, we heard Peter, the author of this this letter that we've just read a section of, use the adjective inexpressible as a description of joy, which is a little bit less than comforting when you want to preach on it, because that doesn't really help you. And yet, in a sense, I think that's exactly something of the nature of joy. It's, It's hard to put your finger on it. And what's the difference between happiness and joy? Both are feelings, both are emotions, both come on a scale from slight to overwhelming. I think fundamentally happiness and joy are the the same thing. But when the Bible speaks about joy, it takes it up above the level of what we normally think of as happiness. It talks about a a happiness that supersedes or rises above circumstance. Joy empowers people. Joy exalts and shares itself out. Joy overflows to other people. And I think at this point you're thinking he's got no idea how to define joy. And maybe you're right. The Bible, and Jesus in particular, gives us pictures to describe what joy is like. He says joy is like a a feast where there's so much food and so many different types of food. And you walk in and you just think, wow, and the wine is overflowing and the guests are too numerous to count. Joy is like a family. To know and to have loved ones, to be accepted and to belong. To know safety and peace in the ongoing presence of those who love you. Joy is to be found. Jesus tells parables about people who find things and their response is to well up with happiness. He describes a shepherd who finds a sheep that has been lost. Jesus describes a woman who's lost a coin of great value and then she finds it. And it's almost like Jesus is trying to get us to imagine the the look on the, the woman's face. And she calls people in and says, come and celebrate with me because I found what was lost. And maybe the best description or, or picture of joy comes with those two other stories that Jesus tells in Luke's gospel. He tells the story of a son who turns his back on his father, takes his inheritance, goes and squanders it, and then, and then comes back home with his tail between his legs. And the father runs towards him and wraps his arm around him, there's family, and says, we need to have a party because my son who was lost is now found. Joy is a feeling, an emotion that is felt and then explodes out. Joy is happiness. But when the Bible talks about joy, it ties our happiness to a God who has made us and knows us and cares for us and loves us. That's something 
of what the Bible says joy is. Can you feel it? Do you know it? Do you want it? See, happiness is great. But a lot of what we describe as happiness is fleeting. It's here one day and gone the next. Some of us are very shaped by our weeks. And happiness is found on a Friday afternoon, but it's nowhere to be seen on a Monday morning. Happiness is found when our team wins at rugby last week, but then is nowhere yesterday when they lose. But when the Bible talks about joy, it seems to find some, a happiness that, that doesn't disappear depending on how today's going. Or depending on which day of the week it is. It's not talking about a happiness that can disappear or evaporate in an instant. Because a phone call, call comes in with bad news. Or exam results are opened and the future looks different. When the Bible talks about happiness or joy, it talks about something that cannot easily be lost. It's like a limpet that clings to the rock at the seaside and no matter how many times the waves crash onto that rock, the limpet stays. And when some child or adult comes along and thinks, oh, I want that for my collection, they, they can't get it off. One person I read said, happiness is like rising bubbles, delightful and inevitably fleeting. But joy is like oxygen, ever present. I don't want to, to separate happiness and joy because I don't think the Bible does. It's just that when God speaks about joy, he says, this is something, a happiness that lasts. So if that's what joy is, or a sense of what joy is, how do we get it? That's the question, isn't it? How do we get this joy? Well, let's think about our next point. Joy derived. You see, that joy comes from knowing a joyful God. In John chapter 15, Jesus is talking to his disciples. I'm going to read a little section of it to you. This is just before Jesus is going to go to the cross, before he'll be killed, and then before he rises to new life. But he's preparing his disciples for life without him. Because although he will rise, he will then go to heaven. And he's equipping them and building them up and teaching them. And he says to them in John 15 verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus is talking about love, calling them to, to love God and to love one another. But as he speaks about this, he reveals something about himself. He talks about his own 
joy. And he situates that joy, if we could cut Jesus open and pull him open and think, well, where does this joy come from? What's the root? Jesus says the root comes from the loving relationship I have with my Father. God the Father and God the Son. They love one another. They have been, before the creation of this world, in a relationship that superabounds with love. And the source of Jesus' joy is that relationship. It's knowing the Father and being loved by the Father. And working that out, therefore, being obedient to the commands of the Father and the plan of the Father. And did you notice, though, that Jesus not only has this joy... But he needs and wants to share that joy. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. If we want to be a joyful people, we need to go and ask the person who is the most joyful. I think we understand how that works, don't we? If we want anything that somebody else has, we... We ask them, where did you get that from? You pop round somebody else's house and maybe they've got a, a particularly nice TV. You think, oh, well, I like that. I could see that. In a... Where did you get that from? Maybe you ask how much was it, but maybe that's rude. Go to the person that has it and ask, where did you get it from? And so John takes us to Jesus. And he says, look at Jesus. Look at his joy. Jesus is the most joyful man to have ever lived. And notice that it wasn't dependent on life going well. Jesus endured disappointment. Jesus encountered illness. Jesus was let down and even betrayed by his closest friends. His family thought he was crazy. His hometown didn't believe in his calling. Jesus even goes to a Roman cross and is crucified. And yet, Jesus has great joy. And his joy doesn't come from the circumstances around him, how his days go in. It comes from his eternal relationship with the Father. If we had time, we could dip into Proverbs chapter 8 and just see the description of Jesus personified as wisdom with the Father, delighting, joying in the Father. But maybe you could look at that later. But notice this. Jesus says to his disciples, my desire for you is to, to come and join in my joy. Come and share. I think that's one of the indicators of true joy. That it desires and requires sharing. To know that happiness means to want other people to experience it. I think we know something of that. We know that it's better, even with something like the Olympics, it's okay to, to watch it by yourself. But we really we want to experience these, these great moments with other people so that you can turn and look and go, are you seeing this? There's something about the excitement of true joy that says, 
Come and see. Come and share. Come and have what I'm having. So let's ask the question then. Where does joy come from? If it comes from Jesus, then for us, how do we, how do we access this? How do we get hold of this, this joy? And if joy is not dependent on circumstances, as, we, as we've said, well, let's look at the church. If this is a marker of the church, let's see if it works out. And let's, let's be intellectually honest about this as we conduct our experiment. Because we could say, is the church full of joy? And you could say, oh, come along to church on a, on a baptism Sunday. And you will see the church will be buzzing, people will be smiling, the singing will be great. Come along to a wedding and experience the joy of the church. But uh, come on, let's be honest here. Let's see what the church is like when things are difficult. When things are hard. Is there joy then? And so we turn to 1 Peter, the passage we read earlier. Peter's writing to a a scattered group of churches who have had it hard. If you read through this letter... You can't get more than a few verses through. And then another few verses through where Peter is talking about suffering. Listen to what he says in verse 6. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Okay, so there's joy there. Good. Though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. You've suffered grief in all kinds of trials. I think this generality from Peter is so helpful because it causes us to stop and just think, what is in that category? How do we fill that blank? All kinds of trials. Maybe if we stop for five seconds now, you could immediately fill in that blank on my sheet of paper. Here's what trials looks like. It could be health. It could be relational. It could be career or lack thereof. This is a group of Christians who are struggling, who are suffering, who are grieving, hurting. But this is a group of Christians who have, verse 8, an inexpressible and glorious joy. It's not, Peter says, this is something that they can have. This is not something he says that some of you have. This is not something that applies to the best of you. This is not a category of the super spiritual, super strong Christians amongst you. This is not just the leaders amongst you. You. You Christians have an inexpressible and glorious joy. You who have and are and will suffer. 
And he's going to ram the point home. He's going to keep talking about hardship and suffering because that's the experience of their lives. But he can say you have an inexpressible and glorious joy. If one Peter was a Twitter account, it would have hashtag suffering in its bio because it's always there. But the Spirit of God is at work in the church. And so they have joy. And so they rejoice. Why? I think Peter helpfully says, this is about the past, present and future. In these verses, he gets them to look back, to look forward and to look at what is happening right now. So firstly, the past. He says, look back at what God has done for you in Jesus. Verse 3, in his great mercy, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's already talked about how they are called and chosen in Christ for a life of obedience. They've been called to salvation. They've been called to hope. And it's nothing to do with them. It's all to do with what Jesus has done. It's his mercy, his sacrifice, his death, his resurrection. Our joy comes from the fact that God has done all of this. As we stand in the moment of today with today's circumstances and today's problems, we need to look back to what God has already done in history through the person of Jesus Christ. Our hope is not dependent on our strength, this hope that he talks about. It's not dependent on our ability to carry on or our ability to change things. Our joy comes from the fact that God has already worked through Jesus and he has called us to life. Our joy comes from the fact that we recognise that when Jesus entered this world, he did it for us and so in the middle of august we can sing joy to the world because it's as true today as it was two thousand years ago when jesus was born in bethlehem and so peter says to them look back this is why you have joy because of what has already happened but but then he says look forward read verses four and five with me this is the the, the new the living hope that we've been called into into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. You who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. I think Peter's saying, guys, you get that sometimes we act like children in a car on a journey. And it's a long journey and you sat in the back seat and you are complaining complaining about how long this journey's been going on complaining because your brother or your sister is squashing you or because they get to sit in the middle or because you have to sit in the middle and you probably complain about it either way and they're screaming and they're shouting because we don't want to be here and we're not enjoying it it's too hot it's too cold i feel sick this is what we can be like But we've forgotten where we're going. We've forgotten what the end result of this journey is. 
that we're going to the zoo and we're going to have ice cream and we're going to see amazing animals and it's going to be wonderful and fun. But as Peter writes to them, he says, you've got it. You've remembered and are remembering and are influenced by the fact of what is to come, that the Jesus who came into history in the past and died and was raised for us is coming again. That your future is wonderfully bright because you are going to receive an inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. This is an inheritance that's not going to go up or down depending on the market. This is an inheritance that's not going to be affected if your brother or sister has more children and that their grandparents' inheritance is going to be divided a few more ways. This is an inheritance that is secure because Christ is returning. And one day we will see him. He hints at that later in the the verses. That we don't see Jesus fully yet, but one day we will. And we will be with our God and we will know him and we will enjoy him. And we will enjoy the new world, the new heavens and the new earth that he is making. And it is a sure and certain hope. And so as we look forward, what will come tomorrow, whenever tomorrow is, it brings us joy now. Because it reminds us that the hardships of today is not the end story. This is not it. But then thirdly, having looked backwards and then looked forwards, the third reason for our joy that that Peter gives us, he says, remember that God is in control of all things. Let me read verse 6 and 7 again. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come, so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. He says, that moment when you stop to think about all the things that are hurting, He says, in that moment, your temptation is to always think these things are pointless. These things are are worse than pointless. There's no good coming of this. It's only bad. And he says, Peter says, no, these things have a purpose. For the Christians, we can have joy in suffering Because we know that the reality, even if we can't see it, is that God is above and over all circumstances. And that nothing happens to us by accident. No hardship, no struggle, no strife. All that happens to us is being used by God to refine us. Just, he says, just like gold is refined. But he says the problem is is that gold, even though it lasts forever and ever and ever, actually one day it won't. But he says your faith will. And all these things that are causing you struggle and strife right now have a purpose because your faith is being refined. You are being made better. 
You see, we see the immediate. But what brings us joy is to see what is above and over the immediate and equally as true and equally as real as the things that we feel so painfully that God is in control and God is at work in every circumstance. And our faith, as it is being refined, will result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. We do not see the purpose often of the things that fall into the category of all kinds of trials. But Peter says this brings us joy, knowing that the ultimate goal and outcome of all these things is that our faith will be refined and it will be to the praise and glory of Jesus. That there will come a moment when Jesus will stand and it will be seen by all people how good he is, how great and glorious he is. And at that day, we will not look back on any grief, any hardship, any suffering and not say it was worth it. It was worth it for Jesus. It was worth it for Jesus. That brings us joy. Now, an inexpressible and glorious joy. So that's where our joy comes from. As Peter writes to the churches and reminds them. But let's just ask the question. Where does our joy go? Maybe you're a Christian here and you've been a Christian for a long time. Or maybe a short time. And you just think, I don't feel particularly joyful. I'm not sure there's much joy in my life. Why are we not experiencing this now? Or all the time? I think the second, the second question there about experiencing joy all the time. We look to Jesus and recognise that there are moments of, of hardship the Bible tells us that Jesus endured the cross for the sake of joy that was to come. And there are seasons where we fight for joy and we strive for joy. But there's also the recognition that there are things that we do that cost us joy. So as we finish up, we ask the question, where does joy go? Three warnings. Joy is lost, warning number one, when we are self-reliant. I love where he finishes this little section. As he looks at them, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. It's all Jesus-focused. The common theme for joy in Christians is looking to and believing in Jesus. And we lose joy when we look away from Jesus and we look to ourselves. When we look at our goals, our strengths, our weaknesses, our successes. When we become self-absorbed. When we begin to trust in ourselves and not Jesus. And the marker is that we begin to look for those quick happiness fixes. And we stop trusting that Jesus is producing in us that deeper joy. Warning number two, Jesus, that joy is lost when we are solo running. The Christian life is not meant to be lived 
alone. If joy doesn't have that opportunity to overflow and to be shared with others and similarly to be in the place where, we, where other people's joy overflows into us, well then joy dries out. If we don't have the opportunity to, to walk alongside other people, to carry other people's burdens, to point other people through our words and through our lives back to look at Jesus, then our joy gets dry. I think we noticed that some of that at the Olympics this year, as great as it has been, there's a sense in which it's not quite as joyful as it would have been if there were crowds of people joying in the success of these athletes. And you see it when you get the pictures of the athletes and then we get a, a, a side picture of their parents celebrating at home. And you just kind of go, oh, isn't it a shame that they're not there? Joy is lost when we solo run. And I think that's just a, a helpful reminder to us to think about the last 18 months and to think about the people in our church family who have, who have been alone. You know, because of circumstance. How can we draw near those who, for whatever reason, are not with us as much as we would love them to be and as they would love to be? How can we draw alongside people? Something to think about for all of us. Warning number three, joy is lost when we sin. Tim Keller he has an example about this, and he says that we as Christians are like buckets, and the Holy Spirit is pouring joy into us. As we look at Jesus, as we reflect on what God has done and is doing and will do, there is joy there flowing into us. But when we sin, we put holes in the bottom of the bucket. And the, and the the joy just flows out. And I think especially, you know, sin is such a broad category of all the things that, you know, that we do do that we shouldn't do and the things that we don't do that we ought to do. But specifically those sins where we are turning away from God, looking for happiness elsewhere. I think then we lose some of our capacity temporarily to, to enjoy the joy of God. Joy is lost when we sin. We need to think about our own lives. Where are we pursuing joy elsewhere? Where are we settling for less than what God offers? Because when we turn away from God, we don't look at him and we don't enjoy his goodness. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Paul tells us in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. And then he says, I'm going to say it again. It's like he's gone, I'm not sure you've got it. You're a bit dull. I think that's how I read it. Rejoice in the Lord always. There is never a point where it's not true that we can't look into the past and see what Jesus has done. And there's never a point where we can't look to the future and see what Jesus will do when he returns. There is never a time not to be joyful, not to trust in God's ongoing sovereign and providential care for us, no matter what today's circumstances hold.
So rejoice. Sing to our God. Sing to one another and call each other to joy. Share your joy with others so that they too might rejoice with you. It's not a bad tagline for what evangelism is. Sharing the joy we have in Jesus with people who are searching and seeking for a joy that does not run out. Let's pray. Father, we ask that we might know more of that fruit of your Spirit's work within us. He who has joined us to Jesus, he who is at work in us, causing us to have faith, revealing the work and words of Christ, making them true in us, and consequently giving us the joy of Jesus. Father, we pray that we might know more of that joy Help us now, even as we sing, Lord, to have hearts that are filled with joy. And we pray that we might be able to attest to the truth of these words in 1 Peter. Lord, that we know and have an inexpressible and glorious joy. Father, we pray it for each other. And we pray that others might come to share in this joy. In Jesus' name, amen.